0: Good afternoon. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today on the program, Richard Ford is here. Uh, Richard, thank you for joining me here.
1: Great I, pleasure, T. Thank uh, you for letting me come.
0: Oh, well, anytime, anytime. And you're actually, I um, should say, we're taping this, this show um, on April 8th, 2011. Um, and you were in town. Um, you're going to be giving a reading at the Art Museum. Right. Um, and also, you came to, you've got. Um, a book, blue collar, white collar, no collar, stories of work, uh, which you've edited for Eight Two Six Michigan. All exactly. proceeds will go
1: exactly. which will be published officially the uh, I think the nineteenth of April, and we had a little reception for it in Ann Arbor uh, yesterday, and um, um, just letting the, the donors and the people who are involved with Eight Two Six know that this book exists, and it was it was it was done to. Um, it was done to raise money and to and to raise uh, community awareness of Eight Two Six and all of the remarkable things that go on there.
0: Yes, and Eight Two Six is a national organization right. um, to encourage creative writing in youth, um, and, and
1: lots of other things too. And imagination, I mean, and imagination, and 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 um, a lot of solving of, of, of childhood problems get uh, gets done in the Eight Two Six. Uh, facilities and you know help with homework and um, sort of you wouldn't want to call it counseling because I don't think anybody would call it counseling but just you know talking to people talking to kids
0: yeah a place a good place for kids to go and, Indeed,
1: and, after school,
0: and, right. he, and here in Michigan, it's it's a robot supply shop. So it's, it's by day, con- by day, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yes, who it knows? Mysterious
1: in the Comes afternoons, along. though, when the kids, yeah, I'll show up. Sure.
0: Oh yes, and so now why? And well, 826 is national, be, beginning I think in San Francisco. Right. And Dave Egger started
1: it um, with with his large S at, at 826 Valencia in in the Bay Area, and then affiliated. Um, uh, um Eight two six all over, very well, I shouldn't say all over, but in various places in, in America, and including in Dublin, Ireland, where my friend Roddy Doyle uh, runs one.
0: I did not know yeah. that they'd gone to Ireland. Yes. Oh, that's wonderful. And you actually, you, you did a stint at Trinity College in Dublin.
1: I am a professor at Trinity College. You
0: are, still. For my sins. Oh, <laughs> oh Trinity's a great something's, place, though. Something's got to help you, right? Yeah. <laughs> or all, each of us. <laughs> not just to point fingers, Richard. Oh, Trinity's
1: I, great. Trinity's a wonderful place. tucked right in the middle of Dublin and a um, great old antique university.
0: And, and how did you become, like, how did you become professor of Trinity
1: College, Dublin? I, 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 I hear the incredulity in your voice. No. It's, 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 that I, is I, not I, true. It, I am as incredulous as you are. <laughs> One day I went out to the mailbox and opened it up, and there was a letter asking me if I wanted to become a professor at Trinity College. I guess that's just how these things happen, And and, and I thought, well... Gee whiz, I'll just say yes to that because I thought it would be nice to get to go over to Dublin. Um, and so I go over in the spring and in the fall and uh, spend some time with the graduate students. My, my duties are not um, oh, so specified you're do- and not onerous.
0: And you're doing it currently yeah. then. So.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, well, I'm not quite sure if, if anybody knows what's happening currently in, in Ireland, but um, a, as of last fall, I went. Yeah.
0: Wow. Oh. So you're doing, and, and we were just mentioning before we came on the air, how you are also at the University of Mississippi for this year, after the passing of your good friend, Barry Hannah. Exactly
1: right. Barry died uh, uh, after a long, you know, sometimes I was just reading the other day, some people say that, you know, you have cancer as he did, and, and you're described as being valiant and people aren't, you know, the person was saying, well, you aren't valiant, you just have this disease and it either gets you or you don't. And you have to keep uh, going. Barry, honest to God. <laughs> Um, had a, a life force like no other that I knew and, uh, and really did just fight it down to the ground. And so, um, uh, frail little vessel that he was, um, he, he fought it and fought it and, and lots of other things too. And, and finally succumbed. And, and I realized after he died, um, that with his passing, uh, m- of my generation, there weren't any Mississippians, uh, who were writers, uh. With a with a with a altogether writing life, uh, living in the state, and, and and there are there are some there are plenty of writers living in the state because writing is one of Mississippi's great exports, and um, but I thought well it, maybe what I should do is just pick up and go down there and stay for a while and um, stay as long as I want and um, try to be useful in the state uh, from that little perch up there at Oxford,
0: and so so have you been there this. Well, you were in Dublin in the fall, right? I'm not, so... th-
1: my life is is hardly charitable. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I try to duck out of as many responsibilities as I can, and and, and try to maximize the ones that I actually seize. And so, uh, you know, I haven't been to Mississippi yet to do this this stint. It begins in the in the dog days of this coming August, and, and lasts until the end of the second semester
0: well having been born in jackson mississippi yes. um you can you can probably you know the summer the august that you are heading towards i know you, it. you know it deeply <laughs> i know it
1: uh it, it brings up serious questions about my sanity but uh i you know the heart is is the heart so
0: yeah later we'll hear about the whole the 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 holes in the heart the heart's holes yeah um, from mark yeah so that'll be coming on deck. Oh, we should mention Jerry maybe Douglas briefly. yes, that,
1: that that wonderful dobro that you heard uh, at the at the top of our conversation was from the great Jerry Douglas, uh, the best, as far as I'm concerned, for my money, the best dobro player in the world.
0: And have you seen him play? Yeah, yeah. With his,
1: oh. oh, yeah, I have. Um, he's a remarkable guy. he he is the He's the guy who plays uh, behind Alison Krauss when she plays with her band but he has a, he has a single um a solo career as well but he's a session musician for everybody i mean my god he plays plays for everybody and is uh, remarkable truly remarkable
0: it's the composition that we heard um it was even though there was there was this quiet intensity about it it was it was almost as if you could hear the the thinking piece of the music in it somehow
1: it's quite harmonious uh uh quite melodic uh, when, when he plays, and he, he, no easy trick on that instrument to, to, to play melodies and, 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 to, and to play cohesive. He, th- he says it himself, he said it's hard enough to, to, to play this instrument behind people singing, but it's much harder to write for this instrument uh, completely intact uh, compositions. He says, so it's not me saying it. No. No one needs to say, oh, yeah. Ford doesn't know what he's talking about. Ford doesn't know what he's talking about, but Jerry does.
0: Do you play any instruments?
1: Oh, I used to play several instruments, but, you know, I'm not smart enough to do two things at once. And so um, I gave up all of my other uh, affinities when I was 23 and started being a writer, actually, right here in Ann Arbor, Michigan.
0: Let's let's talk about well, you know what, maybe I'll read your short bio in the back of of Blue Collar, White Collar, No Collar, Stories of Work. Um, just out uh with Harper Perennial. I guess April nineteenth it will be. I out. think you've got one in your um, hand though. I do. It's a it's an artifact. It's right here in the studio. <laughs> um yeah, let's start with this bio and then fill in some of okay. the, the pieces, if you don't mind Richard. Richard Ford is the author of the story collections Rock Springs, Women with Men and A Multitude of Sins as well as six novels, among them The Sports Writer, Wildlife, Independence Day, which won both the Pulitzer Prize and the Penn Faulkner Award for Fiction, and most recently The Lay of the Land, which was a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award. Ford is at work on a new novel and a collection of stories. He lives in Maine, and New Orleans, and Dublin, and Oxford, Mississippi. Uh, well, that,
1: can't <laughs> live in all the places at once, I guess, but uh, Maine and New Orleans is, w- w- it was at least true when I wrote that. Uh, <laughs> but my, my wife um, just left her position as assistant deputy mayor of the city of New Orleans and came, came home to me um, on Saturday, in fact. She's been down there for a year. Yeah, being a public official.
0: Yes, because I think it, in one of the iterations of your bio, biographies that I've read, um, uh, there was a time where you lived. I think on was it Bourbon Street? Eleven thirty
1: nine Bourbon Street. We moved there in 1989 and lived there until I think 2001 or two. Then I just got tired of the the yammer uh, of Bourbon Street, and we moved uptown to Six and Coliseum, and then. Ray Nagin became the mayor of New Orleans and he, being the moron that he was and is, uh, uh, fired my wife. And so then we sold our house and we had a place in Maine by then and we moved up to Maine.
0: Because she had been a city planner before she was the mayor.
1: She got a degree from the University of Michigan in 1976 in uh, urban and regional planning.
0: Okay, and so that's when you you guys were here. So maybe we could fill in some of the pieces because you, you came... Um, up to Michigan State for undergrad. I
1: did from Mississippi, and then, and then I <laughs> spun off after that and had various little stints. Like a stint here, at and law there. school, yeah, a and... uh, stint in the Marines, and a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Um,
0: How long did you stay in the Marines? Oh, Richard? not
1: very long because I got hepatitis, and uh, upon being in, and then I then I eventually was discharged uh, before I could go to Vietnam, where I was int- intended to go. Um, but it was 64, so that's where everybody was going. Yeah. Um,
0: so in some ways, it was so lucky that you got hepatitis then.
1: Well, you might as well say that. Here I am sitting here. Yes. Uh, it, it, yeah.
0: It probably didn't probably feel that. Probably
1: if I'd w- been, you know, if I'd gone where I'd been intended to go, I would have had a harder time being here now. Uh, all yeah. Those guys didn't come back.
0: Not on living writers.
1: That's right. Yes. That's right.
0: Oh, um, but so glad that you. You are here, and it's so sad that so many didn't.
1: Yeah, return. well, you know, you, you, it was a thing my generation did. It went to that war, and uh, I think there will always be in me some odd sense that I, uh, as stupid as it sounds, that I that I missed the, the great event of my generation by now going over there and getting blown to bits. But uh, um, you know, you didn't go. You didn't go. You tried to go. You tried to go. It's, uh, well, he... hard to put yourself, hard today in 2011 to put yourself back into the mentality of a 20-year-old in 1964, what you thought was important. and We were all going to be drafted anyway. The, the reason I joined the Marines was that uh, I was either going to be drafted or... And
0: put anywhere.
1: Put anywhere. And I uh, thought I should at least try to exercise some discretion about where I went and how I got there. Yeah. Just the Marines, were, you know, macho challenge to me.
0: Yes, maybe, maybe now you would be thinking, oh, Navy SEALs, or.
1: Oh no, I was. I knew then there was no way. You no, know, that, that's another whole brand of human being. From what I was, <laughs> I was just marginally good enough to get in the Marines.
0: Uh-huh. and then, um, it's. I, I think it's, it's interesting that you say that there's, that was of a time, but I feel like um, young people uh, across the nation, they still almost those feel those tugs. Maybe it's because a lot of the military recruiters are still going out into rural areas, or that's presented as one of the options of how you can be, mm-hmm. so, be someone or be something or, or leave your town. or.
1: or uh, well, I'm, I'm probably too old to know what young people feel. Uh, I don't teach I don't, I'm not around them very much and so I, I don't seek them out particularly and uh, and so I, I, I don't I don't know but and even I have a very strong impulse to think that that when you get out of high school you, you definitely ought to commit yourself to some kind of public service for the country women and men alike and it doesn't have to be military it could be military if you wanted it to be. Teach but to teach for America you know the government I, I really thought. President Clinton would do something about this, and uh, it would seem like something President Bush would have would have done. And I've now I've thought that President Obama would do something about it, but it doesn't seem to be how on anybody's agenda to, to you know to to get out like Israelis do and feel like you owe your country a couple of years of work. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did it; it didn't hurt me. Yes, worked and- in the neighborhood youth corps, uh, one of those great society programs, as a as a sort of organizer. Yeah. And Clearing land in this, in the town of Little Rock, Arkansas. Did all that stuff.
0: Where your grandfather lived.
1: Right. And where all my family's from.
0: Oh, I see. Okay.
1: You know, everybody in my family but me uh, was from Arkansas. I just happened uh, providentially to be born in Mississippi. Um, Although because, the rest of them were Archie's.
0: Because that's where your mom and dad were living. And right. He was a traveling salesman, that's right. but that's where you were based.
1: That's right. My father and mother sort of lived a long, wonderful, blissful young life in their car uh, for about 15 years. And finally, when my mother uh, unexpectedly became pregnant, I don't think actually that my parents knew what made people pregnant. And so she found herself pregnant and his boss said, Parker, you know, you're going to have a child now. You really need to live somewhere. You really need to live maybe in the middle of your traveling territory. So he looked at the map and saw that Jackson was the middle of his traveling territory. And without knowing really a soul there, they moved to Jackson. And therefore, I am a Mississippian.
0: And that's how things go.
1: That's actually, as far as I'm concerned, how things always go.
0: We're going to take a short ba- break and we'll be right back. Um, we'll have more of a conversation today with Richard Ford. Um, his book that's coming out towards the end of April: Blue Collar, White Collar, No Collar Stories of Work, as edited by Richard Ford. We'll be back. <music>
2: You can tell me your troubles, I'll listen for free Regulars, trust me, it seems You can come and see Uncle to get through the week Leave your pledges with me to redeem Some folks sell their bodies for ten bob gold. Politicians go pawning their souls Doesn't make me look too bad, don't you know Me with my heart full of holes All my yesterdays broken A watch with no face All battered and old Bits of the movement all over the place And a heart full of holes
0: just tuning in you've got living writers i'm t hetzel and today on the program richard ford is here um and thanks to the liz liz Wayson, for engineering um
1: and that was the great mark Knopfler.
0: yes if richard,
1: anybody was wondering
0: thanks for picking the songs for the show today it's a pleasure and so and and you there's um
1: shows my age isn't it mark and i are the same age he's a good pal of mine. Uh, i did a book tour in in um germany uh, four years ago and we went to every Hamlet that there practically is, and when we did the every night, we would do this reading and a little dog and pony act. And um, you and I Mark was, Knopfler? No, oh. but no, well, me, oh. me and Martin Knopfler, we played this. We played this song, and it, I, I love this song so much; I never get tired of hearing it. Um, but he's a yeah, he's a he's a, a bud of mine.
0: Yeah. But but what I'm sorry because I I derailed the Germany story then. So well, there we isn't
1: really a, the... an end to the Germany song uh, <laughs> story, except that I. Played this song every night, just in in, in the run up to what we did. Um, oh, okay. Because I was reading, I was reading from the Lay of the Land, a novel I wrote and published in Germany in two oh seven, I guess. And um, we just played that.
0: Is is that is that strange when um, the novels had its life here in the states, and then it comes out um, maybe a bit a bit later in another country with and there's a translator involved and. Um,
1: it's to be wished for. There's nothing strange about it. You just, you know, uh, you're just a, a lucky duck if, if, if that happens to you. I never went to Europe uh, when I was young, um, and I don't know why. Uh, I guess because, you know, growing up in isolated parochial Mississippi, I really felt like I had the most to learn about my own country. And, and even though my family's Irish, um, I... I I just never went. And so, finally, in 1985, I was 41, somebody from London said, would you come over here and give a reading? And I thought, well, this is the way to go. Go on on the back of your books. So, and then that sort of happened and changed that part of my life. I got to go to Europe then.
0: So you went to London and then after that?
1: To Paris. And, um, And then after that, the books, you know, luckily got translated uh, into 30 languages. And so um, uh, they've sort of let me go here and there in in my life. But, you know, I should say to, you know, uh, Europeans look at American literature um, differently necessarily from the way that Americans look at American literature. They're interested in American literature largely not for the stylistics, but for what it tells them about our culture and sort of curiosity about American life and, rather than literary achievement. And, and, and so my books are about America. They're set in America. They essay to be books about American life. And so I think they got taken up for that reason, apart from whatever literary appeal they might have. Uh,
0: it's true. Your books were sort of battling the... Um, the like the the Dallas and the um, the different <laughs> yeah. shows that were over. That's right. Um, that were actually people thought were American like
1: That's right. I mean, is it so? I mean, the things that I might like about my books probably are, if anybody likes them in France or if they like them in Denmark or someplace, uh, it's probably different from what somebody else would read them for. It's it's also the case that each generation of writers coming along every twenty year period. There are about five or six writers who sort of get plucked up and sort of force-fed into the various European cultures. And, and, and I think I got plucked up a little bit because of Ray Carver, because he was my great pal. And when, when Carver went to uh, to Europe, he went over there and, and, and told his editors, you know, I've got this friend who's who I think is a good writer. Would you look at his work? And so, I mean, I sort of, Got lucky that way. Uh, everybody, everybody has the route to whatever luck they have. Different.
0: You had to have the the stories. You had to have the novels, though. Well, you you have them. to do the work,
1: <laughs> right? But there's plenty of great work that gets published and written in America that doesn't have a sensational life abroad, and that, and that's just a roll of the dice, really, as far as I'm concerned little to do with quality but it's like winning prizes uh many 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 wonderful novels get written that don't win prizes i mean i can think of four or five writers right now who uh never won anything in their life who i think are you know wonderful writers do you want
0: to name them well we could no give them i rich. don't because we it'll could... make them it'll it'll, it'll, it'll make okay. them
1: seem you know um, gut shot or or, or it or, could be the richard luck.
0: the richard ford prizes right here right now living writers <laughs> well somebody
1: wins the richard ford prize every day because i buy a book most every day so. you do oh yeah oh okay,
0: good bless yeah, your yeah. cotton socks well somebody <laughs> has
1: to buy them right yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> you might be, you're gonna be getting a lot of calls from pals borders elliot paybook oh, god, god love them
1: they're all my they're all my friends believe me if it weren't for pals and borders and <sighs> The shaman drum, all those places like that, now gone. I, I oh. wouldn't be in business. It's it's booksellers, particularly independent booksellers, that have that have given me a life and provided me an audience.
0: And and maybe what I've found with with those particular independent bookshops, also, if if they like you, they'll also they they'll keep your books on the shelf, no and matter what out. the trends are. They, they turn yeah.
1: them face out. Yeah. So I don't have to do it.
0: Yeah. <laughs> When you're visiting towns, go that's through right, and just—that's
1: right. Turn the John Grisham books upside down and with their face to the back. No, I don't do that. He's a pal, actually. He's another. He's another homie. Oh, Grisham.
0: You've—you've you've got so many pals, Richard Ford. I'm old.
1: If you have you're either going to have a lot of pals or a lot of not pals.
0: That's true. We'll get in the second half. We'll get to the enemies. All right. the enemies of Richard Ford. No, we'll I, be surfacing. We may not need
1: to go there. It would be too easy.
0: No. Um well, to for a moment to think about um this this latest um anthology that you've edited. Yes. How did that but how did you cross paths with Dave Edgars to do the project? Well I
1: I didn't cross paths with Dave. Um I, I, I cross paths with eight two six Michigan. Uh they that's who
0: this uh, this project was originally indeed. um it's it thinking for Michiganders or right. Michigan
1: Michiganians.
0: Michiganians, yes.
1: <laughs> I've taught long ago don't call them Michiganders as if there was some rare avian thing. It's um, true,
0: it does have a bird like qu- quality but, to it.
1: <laughs> but Amanda Uly at the at eight two six um here in Ann Arbor, uh
0: She's a friend of the show.
1: Yeah, she, uh, she's a she's a she's a, she's a a friend to many, in fact, um, she knew I was coming over to East Lansing to do something with Tom McGuane and Jim Harrison. And um, she said, would you happen by, just let us show you what we're doing? And uh, I did. And as I said to her last night, I just came in and never left. And she she was doing, they were doing so many wonderful things at 826 uh, Michigan I thought, well, what can I do to, you know, to advance your cause? And there isn't very much, turns out, uh, that a, you know, 65-year-old novelist can do for an up-and-going concern like that. So I thought, well, how about if I figure out an anthology? And, if, and, and so I had, I had this idea floating around in my head called Blue Collar, White Collar, No Collar. I just thought it would be a great idea for an anthology of, of stories that have to do either centrally or peripherally with work. And uh, so that's what I did. I found a lot of wonderful writers uh, who I leaned on a little bit, <laughs> uh, whether they be Michiganians or not, like uh, Jeff Eugenides and um, Elizabeth Strout and um, Toby Wolf and Junipero Harry and Stu Dybeck and people. A lot of those, as you hear those names, they have some, they have some relationship to Michigan, yes. and so. Um,
0: Nicholas DelBanco.
1: Nick DelBanco, absolutely. In fact, his in Max Apple, uh, Nick DelBanco story was sort of the the centerpiece for doing it. Um, Because it's the one, really, it's the one story in the anthology which is about writers at work. Yeah, which is a terrific story.
0: And you would you mind reading a a piece from your introduction, Richard? Uh,
1: Well, I'll read the beginning. Uh, That's It causes me to say the least about it. When I was growing up in Mississippi in the 1940s and 50s, my father worked as a traveling salesman. And you might say my family lived in a world dominated by work. My father had gained his job during the heart of the Depression in 1935 and kept it until his dying day in 1960. It was a source of considerable pride to him, not to mention relief and the sponsor of most of our family's material well-being, that he had one job through the Depression, the World War, and all of the 1950s. His job meant viability to him, to us as well. It meant self-esteem. It meant he was a producer. It suggested important self-knowledge and self-mastery. It implied some hold on good character. It solidified him as a family man, work, having a job, being employed, making a living, became virtually synonymous with its gifts and as such became a virtue in itself.
0: Thanks for reading that, Richard. Well, I
1: realized, you know, that um, as a writer who's making up human beings and writing them on the page and trying to make them plausible, that one of the ways in which, for me, characters become plausible is that I provide the reader with some sense of how they earn a living. Uh, he's a plumber. He's an airplane pilot. When I, when I know that about a character, it begins to be more, the character more palpable to me, more feasible. And I, and I thought from that little springboard back to my youth, when my father would, and he knew, we, we knew very few people really, because we lived in Jackson and they didn't know anybody in Jackson, so he knew men on the road. He was a traveling salesman, sold laundry starch. But whenever he came home and told us about somebody, it was always, Barney Rozier, he does this, Rex Best, he does that. So what a person did to earn a living was more than just part and parcel of who they were. It was part of their moral makeup, why we revered them, why we were willing to say they were our friend.
0: And, and, and something about the moral makeup, not as like a, but not as a judgment, really. Or is that, or is it implicit to say? I, I, I. Because it doesn't seem like a judgy thing when you're saying that. It seems
1: almost. No, it was, it's a bona fides is what it is. It, it, it meant all the things that I just enumerated in that introduction. It, 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 it nice meant thing. that you were a producer. It meant that you had a certain amount of self-knowledge, that, that that you knew what you were good at.
0: And the flip side of that, and I think why this book is especially, it seems um, like a tender thing that this was vision for uh, Michiganians, is that because so many people in this state, as well as other states across the country, though, have been struggling with not having even the option, not Indeed. having an opportunity to work.
1: I mean, as long as I've lived in Michigan from 1962 on and in and out through the years, what one knows about Michigan is that it is about jobs. And, and when you hear jobs and the job statistics as a way of measuring the national health reported in the public press, it is often uh, with Michigan as its laboratory, uh, as, as things go in Michigan with jobs, so goes the health of the country. So it seemed to me to be uh, apposite that uh, an anthology that's published in Michigan, it means to support Michigan kids, be about jobs.
0: We're going to take a short break. Um, today on Living Writers, Richard Ford, Th- his book, Blue Collar, White Collar, No Collar, Stories of Work. We'll be right back.
2: Oh, one, two, three, four. The machinist climbs his ferris wheel like a breeze. In the fire eaters line In a pool of sweat Victim of a heat wave Behind the tent The hired hand Tightens his legs On the sword So while it Circus town's on the shore Gone. Oh, that lady, big mama, Missy Bimbo, sits in her chair and yawns. And the man-beast lies in his cage, sniffing popcorn. And the midget licks his fingers and suffers, Missy Bimbo. Been
0: born. Welcome back. You've got living writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today on the program, Richard Ford. Um,
1: and that Rich, was the boss, by the way. That was the boss. <laughs> uh, I think it was, you know, I, my, my, my. <laughs> Talking about work. The, the, the Hardest other pers- working man. <laughs> the other persona that I have is uh, is, is of a Jerseyite, and um, I, th- I think probably if it was The
0: sports writer, Independence Day, is this yeah. Frank yeah. Boscombe?
1: I think if it weren't for Springsteen, I, I'm sure I would have never written any of those books. Absolutely. Yeah. Because he um, made some freehold. Uh, so he knows it right in the middle. He, he he just kind of made it seem possible that you could write a kind of a poetry about a place that is generally considered to be so unpoetic. And now these, unfortunately, these uh, reality show nitwits have stolen it back away from us we have to we have to find a way to wrest it again from their grasp
0: <laughs> to restore a, a, a bit of poetry y'all.
1: yeah <laughs> I've never seen that I Me either I'm afraid to see it
0: I've, I've seen sketches about it on like SNL and different yeah maybe we we shouldn't be afraid of it right Richard I'm afraid of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but that was and, and the storytelling quality oh, that yeah. Springsteen just always brings
1: wonderful narrator a wonderful narrator yeah
0: and again this melodic way of being that's i don't know if it's just the theme for today richard but all the the songs that you've picked it they're all s- melodic in the the foreground and then this some with the storytelling
1: yeah um, they have a kind of odd melancholy quality too at least at least to my hearing today i i don't think of myself as uh, a melancholy person um Uh, more aggressive and bad tempered than anything else but uh, uh, but those are melancholy songs in a way but they're so sweet tempered in a way too
0: yeah yes it's um, Bruce Springsteen was going to going through Youngstown Ohio and a friend uh, um of a friend, tells a story. He had a job working at a plant there in the evenings, like maybe keeping it open to a certain time. And he also was a, uh, a radio, like a DJ in morning hours. So he kind of was, had an odd job keeping the factory open at night or hmm. night watchman or so. And Springsteen had played a show and wanted was interested to see it because of Youngstown being a place yes. that had been huge industrial force and um and the the man was viking jim he wasn't meant to let people in ever but he said it's the boss of course i'm going to let you him bet. come in who's
1: not gonna let the boss in
0: well and then so he did and he doesn't regret it but he got fired
1: <laughs> oh <laughs> he did awful for that yeah
0: yeah and i don't know and i i can't doesn't say
1: much for eastern ohio does it
0: no no um and i can't remember it now because it was it deep into the night of of um fiddle playing and other things so I can't remember I was like did you ever tell Springsteen like I mean I think, I think if I'm just trying to remember this in a like, a like a happy way I think he's like no I didn't want to tell him I didn't want him to know everything was okay I didn't need that job but you know
1: <laughs> well if you have to give up your job it makes a better story than the job was a job
0: that's true. Yes, talking about work, yeah. <laughs> as we are. Um, and I loved in your intro. This is just, uh, just one of the best introductions to any anthology I've 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 read in a in Thank a very you. long time, Richard. Um, just uh, you're just coming, just so alive on the pages here um, as you're starting to frame that's where I
1: should be. The whole <laughs> <laughs> if I'm going to be alive, that's where I want to be alive. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, I mean, it must be kind of amazing, too, then, to have, because here you talk about the choice to become a writer, and then how um, you had this idea of being a writer, Uh, it's, I don't know, in the late 70s, when I was 35, I'm reading from the introduction here, and after writing two novels, each of which brought some credit to me, I was offered a fairly low level, no future, teaching job at Princeton. A fact that wasn't so impressive to me, but caused my mother virtually to swoon. Oh, Richard, she rhapsodized. I'm so glad you're finally getting started. Not that I hadn't had jobs before then. I'd had plenty. Being a locomotive switchman on the Missouri Pacific Railroad at age 17, being a house detective in a bilgy old drummer's hotel in Little Rock, and that wasn't all. But as a working writer, I thought, just really, really lovely.
1: Well, I- Um, God love my mother she uh, never stood in my way when I uh, told her that I was thinking that I was going to be a writer she just gave me a look at uh, you know the painting The Scream (laughs) Um, it's just sort of the look she gave me Uh, 1968 in Little Rock it was raining outside
0: Uh, what did she have did she put her hands up to her cheeks as well
1: well she kind of did did in a way (laughs) she said you are she said it with that sense of resignation. I said, yes, I said, I failed at everything else. I said, oh, this is something I haven't failed at yet, so why not? It's existential freedom.
0: Or that's something you felt good about.
1: Well, I'd, well, in a good Augustinian way, you know, feeling good about it was the absence of not feeling bad about it.
0: But something kept you at it
1: desperation fear of failure uh, are ab- absolutely those are the things that kept me at it i mean i can i could uh, ascribe to it the highest of possible uh, uh, intentions and motives but it was just fear of one more failure i think that kept me at it so assiduously yeah and my wife i mean uh the girl i married uh said to me look this is a wonderful idea you, you know why on earth she would have said that i had no evident talent at all but she said yes this is a wonderful idea you do that And so we got married in 1968, and we're married today, and and she still says the same thing. So, I mean, every writer, I think, needs somebody in her or his corner, and she was in mine. And my mother was not not in my corner. She she just kind of, she read books, but she just kind of looked at me and thought, oh, okay, fine. Um, And I wasn't asking her for money, and I wasn't living at home. Um, I was fairly... Uh, hard working at what I did that's about all I could be so uh, she got along with it okay and uh, saw me publish a couple of books before she died and, and I think that made her happy
0: and, and did you, did she read those, those novels, those My first books. novels? Yes.
1: You know, that's a good question. Uh, I
0: only asked because I, the, maybe there was the racy quality to them. I mean, the, um, the va-va-va-voom sort of, um. I mean, all the factors. dirty words? Yes. <laughs> lots of s- sex
1: and violence. <laughs> that's what I mean. That wouldn't have stopped her from reading it. She, she was, she was pretty much roll with the punches kind of a woman. Uh, I, I. I don't know if she read them or not. Uh, if she didn't read them, I think she wouldn't have read them because she would have been terrified that she would have hated them and then not known what to say. And uh, if she did read them and got to the end of them, I think she would have felt inadequate to know how to say to me that she liked them. I mean, it was kind of a...
0: Because uh, it was more of a high art? Like the Was it like not a story but literature that you were making? Well, I...
1: You know, your parents reading your work always puts them in a terrible position, in a sense. They want to love it, and maybe even even if they like it, they don't know how to, exactly to express it to you. And I'm sort of a volatile person anyway. I, I come from a family that's half Osage Indian and half uh, Irish, you couldn't have a more volatile uh, upbringing and lineage than that and I I think she thought that if she liked my book and said the wrong thing that it would be tantamount to not liking it and that I would do what I often do which is to hit the ceiling so um, she just kept her counsel about that uh, but, but you know keeping her counsel was okay with me I mean I have one cousin uh, from northwest Arkansas and The year my first book was published, 1976, um, we went to Christmas, and my cousin Jeanette said, and excuse me for imitating my cousin Jeanette, she said, well, Richard, she said, I read your book. I said, there's a silence. She said, it wasn't a bit good. So I'm happy just to not have anybody, you know, not say anything. I can I can with complete equanimity mock my cousins. They're my cousins. Yes. I love them.
0: Yes, maybe cousin Jeanette is listening now. If you are, hello out there. Um, well, I ask because it re- when you started to speak about your your mother Richard, it reminded me of the the story about I think maybe in the Paris Review about Eudora Welty, like how you oh. had, you met well. When she had come, when you were at Princeton still, she had come come through and yes, you had a book at did. that point, but you had always felt like she also didn't
1: she sort she of... She didn't respond
3: right. when I sent us? her my
1: books. Yeah. Oh, well, you I, sent them? Oh, well, I mean, I had the publisher send them to her. I mean, I wouldn't have, you know, we were both Jacksonians. So I grew up about 10 blocks from where she lived and actually grew up across the street where she was born. Uh, and we, we were not acquainted because our families were in different strata but um, one in Jackson knew who Eudora was and she actually I found out only last summer came to my high school one time and talked to an English class but I was in the bonehead English class and she talked to all the good students but when I published when I published a piece of my heart I had them send had Harpin Harper Rose send it to her and no response no response I thought well I she just thought it was a dirty book she didn't want to read it so then I published the second book and no response thought so, well she didn't like that either so I just kind of forgot about it and uh, you know she by that time I thought well I'm young she's old she just doesn't get it and uh, but then I was teaching at Princeton and in, and in, in that job I mentioned that you read and she, she came to visit the class that I was teaching because I was teaching a class in southern literature and um, with a man wonderful man named A. Walton Litz and um, and she was there in the class and I said I'd never met her before I said Miss Welty I said um my name is Richard Ford, and I, I teach here, and I, I'm from Jackson. And she sort of looked at me, sort of cocked her head, and she said, is that so? She said. And that's all she said. And so uh, I thought, well, you know, that's strike three as far as I'm concerned. Um, and so I just kind of went on my way. But then that, that must have been about 1979. There was a long silence, and then I published The Sports Writer in 1986, and I went down to Jackson to do a book signing at Lemuria Bookstore. And toward the end of the afternoon, of the two hours I was there, I looked up and there was Judora, And so that would have been in 86. She would have been 76 or 77 then. And she walked up to my table and she said, she had kind of a deep voice. She said, Well she said, I I just had to come and pay my respects, she said. And 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 so she sat down at a at a desk, at the desk where I was in a chair. And um, we had a great conversation and thereafter became very good friends. And all were friends, close friends to the end of her life. She was a wonder. She was she came here. She's been here to Ann Arbor. Well, not recently.
0: No, no. She's dead. Yes. That's, yes, I could, not yes. But when she was vibrant and traveling around, she came to Ann Arbor as well. Yeah, was that... Hmm.
1: It wasn't when I was here. No, I was... It was, it was six, not the time that... You, that uh, when I was here in 71 76, in, the, in the michigan society of fellows and my wife was in graduate school donald was here donald hall was here oh so that's
0: how you too because you mentioned him in different yes. interviews good that you're good friends we're that good
1: he, friends he changed my life really uh i was living in, in chicago and um it's kind of a funny story for young writers uh we we were living in chicago and um one of my teachers in graduate school had nominated me for a fellowship with the Michigan Society of Fellows, which is differently constituted then from now. It was originally intended with the Ford Foundation grant to bring to U of M campus people who wouldn't ordinarily gravitate to such a place. Novelists, for instance. People who didn't have, you know, who, who weren't pursuing degrees, that kind of thing. and um, uh, they wrote me and said, would you like to be considered for this fellowship? And I said, yeah. They said, well, we understand you're writing a novel. And I wasn't writing a novel. They said, well, why don't you send us some pages of your novel and we'll consider you. So in, the, in about five days that elapsed between getting the letter and sending something back, I wrote 50 pages of a novel and sent it over to, to, to Michigan. And Donald was the person who read them. And they invited me to come, which changed my life.
0: We're going to take a short break and then we'll be right back. Um, You're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, Richard Ford. We'll be right back.
3: myself a house in the shade of the freeway Gonna pack my lunch in the morning and go to work each day And when the Dreaming I'll get up and do it again Amen Say it again Amen I wanna know what became of the changes We waited for love to bring Were they only the fitful dreams Of some greater awakening Time going by. They say in the end, it's the wink of an eye. When the morning light comes streaming in, you'll we'll get up and do it again. Amen. God, between the longing.
0: Welcome back. You've got Living Writers on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel today on the program. Richard Ford is here. Um, And also, let's see, well, we're going to... Richard, would you mind reading?
1: I'm glad um, to. This uh, is a story from a a book of... Stories I published in 1987 called Rock Springs. And this is the beginning of a story called Optimists. All this that I'm about to tell happened when I was only 15 years old in 1959, the year my parents were divorced, the year when my father killed a man and went to prison for it, the year I left home and school, told a lie about my age to fool the army, and then did not come back. The year, in other words, when life changed for all of us and forever, ended, really, in a way none of us could have ever imagined in our most brilliant dreams of life. My father was a man named Roy Brinson, and he worked on the Great Northern Railway in Great Falls, Montana. He was a switch engine fireman, and when he could not hold that job on the seniority list, he worked the extra board as a hostler or as a hostler's helper, shunting engines through the yard onto and off the freight trains that went north and east. He was 37 or 38 years old in 1959, a small, young, appearing man with dark blue eyes. The railroad was a job he liked because it paid high wages and the work was not hard and because you could take off days when you wanted to or even months and have no one to ask you questions. It was a union shop, and there were people who looked out for you when your back was turned. It's a working man's paradise, my father would say, and then laugh. Give some credence to what I I said at the beginning uh, about wanting always, for myself at least, and then for the reader too, to know what people do for a living. Um, I, 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 you can find all kinds of wonderful stories in which the characters' occupations and livelihoods are not known. This isn't a rule I'm propounding. It's just, for me, the thing that, you know, attaches people to the earth.
0: And how did you choose the story that you included in Blue Collar, White Collar, No Collar, maybe instead of this story? Like, I guess, how do you make that decision? Um...
1: because the well, you make all decisions haphazardly. <laughs> how do you make your decisions? You have, do you have a better way than moment.
0: I do. You know, the plate like how your dad made the decision for Jackson. Put the map down. Yeah. Put the finger in the middle. <laughs> you know,
1: for me, all decisions are mistakes that didn't work out. Uh, uh, why did I choose the story uh, under the radar? Uh, because it's short. And because it's my anthology, oh, so and I didn't, want, I didn't want to gobble up all the pages for my own story. I, I, you know, I've done lots of anthologies in my life, and I've never, ever before included a story of my own. I've done Best American. I've done two, three big Granta anthologies. I always thought that if I was going to be the judge of these other people's work, that I should uh, be disinterested enough not to think that mine belonged in the, in the cohort.
0: Although this was for a different, like a good cause, like this was, I, I, like you were giving your story for the the youth. We
1: can say that. I just decided to throw that old logic away. I denied myself enough, is what I thought. <laughs> Gave myself a nice cream cone.
0: So be it. <laughs> As well done. <laughs> well, done. <laughs> well, in that in that story, um, from the be- from that optimism from the beginning, optimist, of o- yeah. optimist. Um, it's you. you you're looking you're looking westward like this idea of montana yes. and, and you've lived almost I feel like so many places in the u s although I'm not sure did you did you do a stint in Montana? or absolutely what, you did what at what point and is that where you met Jim Harrison and
1: no no i met I met Harrison because uh, Harrison went to Michigan State right you know there's another college in the state <laughs> oh is there in the state uh, um, I met Harrison in 1975, because I had a book being published, the first one I did, and uh, the editor sent it up to Jim. I didn't know Jim. He was living up in Lake Leland. And, uh Such a beautiful yeah, place. And he's from up there. Uh, and he, you know, gave the book a nice endorsement, and I, I sort of happily invited myself up to visit him. And so Christina and I just got in the car and went up to Drove up there and had, you know, spent a couple of nights with him, which was wonderful. But no, the Montana st- period of my life, and you know, Jim has just moved to Montana within the last seven or eight years. Uh, he lived up, in, uh, uh, up there most of his life. I think uh, to be
0: closer to the grandchildren, maybe. Apparently so. so. Who, who knows
1: why anybody would do that, I don't understand, oh. but, <laughs> but he did. Uh, um, my wife got a job as the head of city planning for the city of Missoula. And I was in the midst of writing The Sports Writer. And I said to her, we were living in New York. She was teaching at NYU. I said, well, 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 how am I going to go to Montana, a place I've never been before, so you can have a job and write a book that's set in New Jersey? She said, you make stuff up, make that up. So I went with her to New Jersey. I went from New Jersey to uh, to, to Montana and and wrote the rest of The Sports Writer, basically, well, most of it in Montana. Uh, um, occasionally I would have to go on uh, forays back back to the Garden State and go drive around in my rental car reading the landscape into a tape recorder then take it all back and transcribe it and stick it in the book but that's okay you know you should be able to I, I wrote a I wrote a novella set in Paris on an airplane once So, um,
0: well sometimes it's even helps to be apart from the place when you're Because what the imagination aspect of, or what's actually deeper than what's on the surface of the place, is what you're. There's a wonderful
1: Richard Hugo essay called "Triggering Town." Oh yes, you know that essay. Yes, I do. It's all about that, about how how you have to, you have to kind of turn turn your head away from a place to write about it, to change it, to be able to. You know, it's the same with writing about human beings in fiction, when you when you try to stick your you know your grandpa Earl uh, whole cloth into your book. All you get is Grandpa Earl. Uh, and so what you really need to do in your writing fiction and writing characters is to you know have them mutate and change and, and adapt to what happens uh, unexpectedly in the story. So to the extent that you put real people into your books, uh, you're causing yourself some problems. Your, trust your imagination in those things is the thing. Pick a little, you know, you know, pick his toupee and the fact that he had a missing index finger and let that be all of Grandpa Earl that finds its way into your story.
0: Because it sounds like that's quite enough of Earl. Pretty yeah. good, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I can that almost see weird. myself. That's right. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> did you Did you know Richard Hugo as well then?
1: Dick Hugo died the year I moved to Missoula. He died oh, wow. just before I got there. So I, I was not privileged to know Dick Hugo, but I know know his poems very well. Yeah,
0: because he built that writing program there. Yes, really.
1: he did. Yeah. Yes, he did. He and Bill Kittredge. Yes. Yeah.
0: Who's still there.
1: Yes. Mm-mm. He's still living yes. in Missoula. Yes. yes. Yep.
0: and and then James Welch too. Did you did you know him? I knew
1: Jim Welch. I, when we lived in Missoula, which was from 1983, off and on until 1989.
3: Uh, wow, so there that's was quite a, big a chunk, quite okay. a
1: coterie of writers around there. Jim Welch, uh, uh, Jim Crumley, Max Crawford, uh, McQueen lived over in the in Cute kid lived over in the middle of the state and. Uh, Bill Yortsberg, a uh, whole lots of writers in Missoula, all of many, most of them really good writers, John Jackson from, from Northern Michigan. Um, yeah.
0: So what a great, so, but it seems like um, Montana at the time, even though you weren't maybe, or maybe you were starting to write some of the short stories all while there. you were there. Oh, you did? I wrote did? all
1: those, I wrote all those stories in Rock Springs interstitially and in, uh, in, during the period of, I was writing, uh, it makes it sound like a heroic effort. It, it wasn't. It, I just wrote those stories between stints of writing The Sports Writer. Yeah.
0: And it said in, I think, the, your Paris Review interview that you wrote short stories so you'd have something new to read each right. year when you went. Is
1: that? Well, it was, it was true of some of the stories in Rock Springs that people would ask me to come give readings. And when you're in the midst of writing a novel... It, th- you don't know all of the pieces that you really want to read unless you're very lucky, and I wasn't lucky with that book. And mostly, I don't read out of the sports writer uh, books. Can be really good, and not have anything to offer to, for public readings. I mean, Eudora used to read the same stories over and over again. She used to read "Why I Live at the P.O.", "Powerhouse", "Item um, a Toy". Three. She had about five party pieces that mm-hmm. she typically read, but because she just didn't feel like the other stories, either they were too long or that the sentences were too in, too involved, they just didn't lend themselves. And likewise with with novels. Novels don't always pop right out and give you something to read in public. So I thought, well, then I'll write some stories which will be short enough, and they will be in a kind of a laconic style, which will let me read them read them with some ease.
0: And it seems like and and writing the sh- so moving between the the novel genre. And then the short story—you could do it with some. Well, I don't want to say with some ease. That sounds presumptuous, but you are good at it.
1: Writing writing isn't hard. If it was that hard, <laughs> I wouldn't be. I wouldn't be doing it. Uh, I, you know, p- you,
0: writing is you hard. You get all involved. <laughs> have an get argument. all
1: involved in the difficulty of, of 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 what you do. You know, the fact that you write novels and stories. Gee, it's just it's monkeys do these things. You know, look I, look at the books around that monkeys do actually successfully write. Uh, so, you know, that's, <laughs> l- let's don't get all grave about being able to write stories. I mean,
0: <laughs> someone once told me a monkey could do the microbrewing that you're doing, and I was like, hey, thanks a lot. I'm still trying to get the hang of it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: but your short stories, I mean, and there's a monkey in Rock Springs. Yes, there the is. title story that is.
1: I was born in the year of the monkey. Someone told me not long ago. I didn't know that because I don't know what any of those things mean. But monkeys do turn up in my life all all the time.
0: Have you had a monkey?
1: No. Not on your not, not yet. Not on your back. Not yet.
0: <laughs> no. <laughs> Cause that, that was like a strange little monkey that came in so sad. He um, just
1: came in to die. You know, there's a wonderful there's a wonderful poem by Lawrence Robb about a, a character in a Raymond Chandler book who only comes into the story to die. <laughs> He's only there to be shot, so the monkey was only there as a sort of a little, a little novelty act, which would then come to a bad end.
0: Richard Ford, this has been something that is coming to an end, but not a bad one. Certainly, oh, this has well, been we wonderful. Start, I
1: wish you could end on a better note <laughs> oh, no. than a dead monkey.
0: Well, <laughs> I know, and it's—I don't know why I'm laughing. It's not. It's because it's funny, maybe. <laughs> Um, but, but, you know, with, um, what is the novel that's going to be coming out? Uh, It's
1: called Canada and it's, uh, uh, set in Great Falls, Montana, starts in Great Falls, Montana, and it ends in Saskatchewan. It's about two children whose parents rob a bank.
0: Let's talk again when that comes out, Richard. I'll be honored. I would love that. Thanks so much Thanks for to today. You. Um, you've been listening to Living Writers today on the program. Richard Ford. He's edited Blue Collar, White Collar, No Collar, Stories of Work. Pick one up um, when you can after April 19th. Thanks again to Liz for engineering. Thanks for listening Ann Arbor and beyond. Until next time.
3: Everybody's had a few.
1: This is Free Speech Radio News for
2: Wednesday the 30th.